Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the productivity loss of being both a gamer and a programmer, relying on Google as your primary site search provider, non-English programming languages, and hiring great programmers from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hi, Joel. Hey, Jeff. It's time for another glorious edition of our podcast. The 29th. Yes. I think, you know, and I think for next episode, we'll do the guest thing again. Joel and I were talking about bringing other people in, but we want to not do it too often. We don't want to turn it into like a comedy skit show. Right. Uh, also, last oh. week I was a little too hyper, so this week I'm going to be depressed and you be hyper, okay? Thanks. Well, I think you were excited about I thought about that, and I, I'm guessing you were excited about the election. I don't know. But it wasn't over that yet. That was my guess. Oh, well, that's true. It hadn't happened. That was just, it was just a theory. I'm like Quincy. I have theories. I don't know how you know good any of them are, but that was my theory. But no, excited Joel was good. I, I mean, enthusiasm is always welcome. I mean, I'm not going to frown on enthusiasm. That's kind of uncool. That's nice. You'll be enthusiastic this week. I'll be depressed. <laughs> are you really depressed? No. Okay, good. Well, I was just, then you, now I was worried. So, <laughs> yeah. Herp. So we're going to do some questions this episode. You got some questions lined up. I feel bad because we haven't gotten any questions in like weeks. I think we should do. Here's what we should do. Every episode should have a couple of questions, a couple of things from the website. Is there any news okay. for the website, by the way? No, it's been really slow. I want to talk about that. Uh, all right, go ahead. It's been yeah, slow. So it's 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 been really slow because well couple reasons. Uh, you mean the actual that, development of the website, not the actual what's going on on the website? No, no, no. The website is doing great. In terms of people coming to the website and the traffic, it's, it's actually higher now than launch. Yeah, um, yeah. Significantly higher. So the website's doing great. And I, I keep encountering people referencing the website. Like I'll just click through to someone's blog and they'll have an entry about Stack Overflow. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. It's actually a little eerie. Like wherever I go, like there's Stack Overflow. So I think Wherever I go, there really, I am. Yeah, exactly. It's really catching on, which is obviously great. Uh, that's the whole point of it. I think the more people that use it, the better it gets kind of thing. So uh, I'm very much for that. But in terms of actual development on the website, there's a couple of things that have happened. One is that uh, Jeff Dalgus is moving into a new house and also about to have a baby like any day now. So he's pretty much not able to do much. Uh, and then as for me, I actually just posted about this on my blog is – the, the difficulty for me is that this is game season. I'm, I'm a long-time PC gamer. Oh, and, this and the is new the video really... cards came out. Well, the new video cards came out. Well, that, that's been <laughs> out for a while, actually. But the, the big titles came out, particularly Fallout 3, which was really huge. And also, it turned out to be like incredibly addictive. Like I could not stop. Tell us about uh, Fallout 3. Is this a PC game, or is it available for consoles? It's available on all major platforms. Well, by major, I mean like PlayStation 3 and Xbox and all modern platforms so you played, uh, played on, on xbox the, no i played it on the pc on pc i'm more of a pc gamer um but a little bit of trivia there and i actually linked to this in my blog post where i talked about my my video card addiction um because there's sort of it's sort of a you know synergy between the games and the video cards that's what makes it so addictive it's not like i just like having a video card it's like i like having a video card and playing these really amazing awesome new games on it uh, but our our wedding pre invitations, not our actual invitations, actually used some Fallout art, <laughs> and that's a measure of how cool my wife is that she actually signed off on that. Uh, you are so dead. No, 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 no. <laughs> she knew, she knew, she totally knew. I wouldn't trick anybody with that. No, no I know, I know. You just you don't understand how much debt you just incurred. You put video game screenshots on your wedding invitations. No, 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 no. It's it's more like concept art. It's hard to explain. There's this thing, the Pip-Boy. It's a very 50s retro... I'm sorry. You shouldn't have to explain your wedding invitation. Well, it was a pre-invitation. It wasn't the actual invitation. <laughs> anyway, it's a minor point. I just want to mention that I have a history of Fallout. Who uh, took these to the post game. office? 
Just checking. As I recall, since you're asking, we made them in Microsoft Publisher, which I don't think I've ever used since then. Post office. Who uh, took we, them to the post office? I have no idea. So All not you, in other words. <laughs> yes. Hey, you may want to call some of your friends and check what their copy of the wedding pre-invitation that they actually got looked like. Oh, well, there's a link to it on a website. We put it up on a website back in 19, on Homestead back in 1999, and it's still there, actually. So it's been sitting on this URL on Homestead for nine years since we got married, so that's pretty fun. But anyway, uh, Fallout, it's, you know, it's post-apocalyptic, sort of dark and gritty, open-ended world, uh, but with an undercurrent of very sort of dark humor. I have a question. Uh, is, there some, is there some graphic card reason why all games are in a world that has been ravaged by war and destroyed and everything is broken and gritty and grimy and dark? Is there like some that, video reason for that? Like, why can't we have a game that takes place at Disney World? Uh, well, they have gotten better at that. For a long time, that was a cliche of like the crate. One thing that people oh, pointed yeah. to was... <laughs> oh, my God. You just reminded me of, of all Duke these Nukem random days. crates. It's like, who brings in all these crates? Where do they come from? It's like, <laughs> what crates? You blow them up and sometimes there's a toy in there. You can use like a better gun or something. Oh, yeah, it Sometimes teaches you to isn't. smash things, which is awesome. Like, whenever I go around in the world, it's like, I could smash that, and there might be stuff in it, you know? It's like, <laughs> not what we want to be teaching our children and young adults, probably. No, we've got to teach but, them just to shoot directly for the head, or you won't kill the zombie. That's much more important yeah. than teaching them to smash crates with a, with a crowbar. There was a very funny Quake 2 mod, and I'll have to put this in the show notes, but the whole crate thing got such currency. There was this site called Old Man Murray. Those people that wrote for the site old man murray actually both work at valve now which is very funny they're mm-hmm. like real legitimate game developers now in various capacities but they had this great website full of this really brilliant writing and one of the things they talked about was this time to create they would rate games by how soon <laughs> after you started it you would see the first crate and enough game developers read this site it was very influential that yeah. they started putting crates in with little signs and it would say ttc and it had a little time on it in the game <laughs> It was hilarious. It was like a little Easter egg, but it was great because they had read the site. And then uh, there was a Quake 2 mod where you played as a crate in a room full of crates, (laughs) which is just hilarious, right? So you have this room full of crates. Because that's basically what the game was. Yeah, yeah, it (laughs) It was was hilarious. So you could just stand there and pretend to be a crate and no one could hit you and then you would move around. It's just, the whole thing was just absurd and crazy and fun. But yeah, time to crate is, yeah, little little piece of gaming. But but that's, but, but. But seriously here, is there something about being a moody teenager playing video games that makes you want to play in a world that's just been destroyed by uh, war? Or is that, is, that, is that meant to cover up something that's sort of a, basically like a, I don't want to say a flaw in the, in the game technology or a weakness in the game technology? I mean, like, is that meant to hide the fact that it's just too hard to make people and so you can't really fill the world with people? And as long as you're going to have a world that's empty, it better look forlorn. Otherwise, it's not going to make sense where all the people went or what's... I think it's a little bit of both. I think they don't really have a lot of great minds coming up with the the plots for Mm -hmm. these games necessarily, although it varies. And I I will say that lately they've done better. The game Far Cry and Far Cry 2 are actually set in tropical locales, which is a great change of pace. I mean, it's like bright outside. I mean, you mentioned Disneyland, which was kind of a joke, but these great tropical, you know, environments, and you go in caves sometimes. But it was a nice mix of being like truly outdoors like these large, expansive environments. Yeah, even, uh, uh, what is it, Half-Life 2 had, you know, the, the, a lot of outdoors and a lot of beach and a lot of uh, cities. and. That's right. And then a game like Mirror's Edge that just came out is set in a dystopian future, but it's very sterile and, you know, really neat graphical style. So mm-hmm. I, I think they're getting better at it. It's not quite as cliched as it used to be in terms of environments. But Fallout, obviously, is, is supposed to be a post-apocalyptic wasteland. So... You know, for what it's worth. But it, it's a brilliant game. I don't want to dwell on it too much. One thing I, I did want to ask you, though, is are, are you a gamer? You don't have to be a gamer. I'm just curious. Um, have you ever played? What was the last game you played? On okay, that's a good question. Uh, uh, c- um, combat, not combat, Call of Duty? Call of Duty. Call of Duty, okay. three and four. One of the, oh, wow, four. That's a recent game. You yeah, that. four is the one where you're actually like in a kind of a contemporary military yes. situation with That's pretty true. modern contemporary weapons. Uh, That's right. Three is uh, World War Two. Um, I, I really yep. like them. You know, I was an infantryman in the in the in the army, and those are the first games that you really have to aim, and you get extra credit. I mean, you can't just just 
shoot at random and actually hit things. You have to aim. And the actual feel of aiming and firing, and even like there's a button you can push to hold your breath, which gets you more accuracy um, when you're sharpshooting. And all that stuff is unbelievably realistic. Like the feel of playing that game is really the feel of being in infantry. The, oh, and the realism that game is so high that I go back to other games that are first-person shooters that where it's just too easy to shoot things or it's too hard to make them die or whatever the case may be, and they're just not appropriately realistic. And uh, I almost can't play them because of the, the obvious blatant unrealism. So I really did like the, what those games do to make it realistic. I mean, certain things like, um, uh, you know, this blew me away in, in, in Call of Duty 4. Uh, when, you're, when you're evacuated by a helicopter, the helicopter lands... And all the other AI soldiers on your side will go and crouch and defend the helicopter, which is sort of standard operating procedure, but nobody bothers to get that right in these games. Like, actually teach the AIs that when there's a helicopter on the ground, you have to surround it and defend it. Right. Uh, and I was like, wow, yeah, I remember when I was taught to do that. <laughs> this is real stuff. It was, uh, That's so, cool. So I, I, I like those games. I liked um, Bioshock because I love the whole Ayn Rand um, dystopia kind of like what what's the logical conclusion of of uh of this um what's the word i'm looking for uh, laissez-faire capitalism right uh it's almost like sort of an extreme libertarianism or extreme laissez-faireism and it sort of takes it to a logical conclusion in, in a way which is really kind of intriguing and, and interesting the story is just awesome There's, you can spend a lot of time looking at things it's also got this really neat sort of 30s retro art deco uh, Bioshock aesthetic. is fantastic. I, I would um, say Bioshock after Fallout was probably the most significant first-person shooter. The one I remember the most. Had the most strong, favorable. Yeah, just like the coolness of the posters that they had in there and the, the graphics yeah. and the, 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 the music that was playing on uh, on the old you know turn, turntables. What do they, they used to call them? Victrolas, Victoria. Victrolas. Let me ask you yeah. a question though about Bioshock. Did you? Did yeah. you? Well, this is a spoiler. So anyone listening, cover your ears. This is an old spoiler though. Spoiler, so spoiler. in Bioshock, there's a big turning point where you catch one of the the girls and the big daddies, and you can choose to either sacrifice her and get an item, or yeah. like save her. Right. So what what did you pick? I uh, I was a good person. Really, I was not. And then I felt really really bad. Like I felt like evil. Like you are evil if you killed the little girl. Well, it turns out because they look so evil, these little girls. I was like, I have no sympathy for these evil things. They only look evil because they have those fake those those eyeballs. You know, those like unrealistic. (laughs) And then I felt like a real like heel. Like for the whole game, I felt like a jerk. You know, because I was sacrificing. And then I felt like once I sacrificed one, well, I might as well sacrifice them all. You don't need the. the, You don't need the whatever it is that they. The truth is that I'm not very good at games. Uh, I don't play a lot of games, and so I don't really understand all the rules that they're telling me. I'm just trying to get get through it alive you know and well, look at the pretty poster software that's not really yeah. that unusual and i would say a game should accommodate that style of play if you have to like read a manual so or... there was something there was some kind of juice that you could get if you killed a girl yes i don't remember what they called it basically eve it, juice, was, it was adam juice eve you wanted the eve that you could get from yeah. the little girl because she went around harvesting it and i didn't know what it was good for or what i would use it for and i kind of understood that somewhere there would be a machine where i could cash this in for you know loot but mm-hmm. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't know enough about. Like I was like, I'm not going to try to figure out what I can get out of these machines and whether I need the loot or not. And it was obvious that I was given the choice. And so I'm, you know, once they give you the choice, you you realize that you can't lose by picking one way. They're not going to well, make hey, it impossible that's, to play that's through encouraging. the end of the game. That's encouraging to hear that you're a gamer. I, I didn't think you would. Well, like I'm not really. As you can see, I'm a very any game. I'm a very bad gamer. I I just like to, you know, the, my favorite thing was after I played that game, I found some site where somebody had collected uh, high resolution bitmaps of all the posters, so all the advertising posters that they had created. Really right. kind of cool, like for you know cigarettes and yeah, yeah. No, there's there's some great games. Um, a lot of the graphic experience that you have is obviously determined by the video card, and that was sort of the focus of the post I just made on my blog. And for the record, I am done with Fallout 3 now. I'm not going to replay it or anything, so I can actually work on Stack Overflow now. All right, one of I the got cool some features about, for you. <laughs> well, one, one of the cool things about that post, though, was I referenced this guy, Gary Taroli, who founded the company 3DFX Interactive. And back in 96, like, I remember the day that card came out, I was so excited. I, like, I had been away on a business trip, so I, like, drove to the office at 1 a.m. to go pick up this video card that I've been so excited to get. It's like the first really good 3D accelerator. I was so excited. 
And then, of course, I got home and ran a bunch of tests on it, and I posted about it on Usenet. Mm-hmm. And Gary Trolley, like responded not directly to me, but to the thread talking about, oh, it's great to see these initial reviews and this really nice post from the guy who created the card. And then I got an email. I, I woke up this morning, and I had an email in my inbox from Gary Taroli. <laughs> and Gary said that someone forwarded him, forwarded him my post and that he actually worked on the GTX 280. Wow. Um, obviously, it's a much bigger endeavor now. I mean, you're talking about two chips that had one million transistors each mm-hmm. in 96. And now the, the GTX 280 has, like I think, 1,140 million Sisters. Wow. So it's gone up by a factor of like a thousand, a thousand. more than a thousand. Uh, but anyway, that's a neat little side note. I, I didn't mean to turn this into a, a gaming podcast, and I apologize, but I just wanted to talk about why there's been less progress than usual on the coding side of Stack Overflow, and also just, I don't know, just share a little bit. And I I'm, was curious about Joel's history as a gamer as well. Yeah. Not much. I just now play a few of the you. most, po- the most, the absolute most popular. Half-Life 2. I played Half-Life 2. Uh, now I need to get you playing uh, Rock Band. I mean, now that I know you're a That's gamer, completely this really... different. Yeah, I was I was disheartened to learn that Joel will not play Rock Band with his fellow employees, and I, I just don't understand that. You you claim there's not enough good songs or songs that you know. I don't know any of these songs. There's like 400 songs in in Rock Band too. They're now, all from the once 80s. you factor in all the downloaded content. Surely, at least one of those songs would be Joel appropriate. I was so excited when I was there. I thought you were going to come play with us. I was very excited. <laughs> well, I always like to leave something to wish for in the future. You know, I don't want to give you everything. That's true. Let's, uh, That's true. Uh, you know, let's do the questions at the end. Let's do our, uh, let's do some topics. Let's pick some topics from Stack Overflow. Do you, do you have a, Do you have one? Uh, I don't, but I do have one thing that is Stack Overflow related I want to mention. All so right, we did have I'll, a minor breakthrough. Means. It's not really solved. But on the SQL Server full text, the 2008 issue that we've been talking about. Oh, yeah. We talked about that last week. They have, they're coming out with a hot fix. Um, it sounds like the blocking that we talked about, they have a fix for. So wow. one of the core underlying causes of the slowdown is that certain queries will block the full text work mm-hmm. and sort of hang up. You know, There's like a traffic jam after that. So they figured out what that is, and we sent them tons of stuff. We sent them, like, dumps of, like, our SQL queries. They actually have a copy of our database, all this stuff. So they were looking at it, and they figured out that one query we were doing, uh, it wasn't really wrong, but the query, I don't know, the thing you call that that, that parses the query and tries to go the query plan creator. Query, the optimized um, Was picking, like, a pathologically bad query plan for this <laughs> one case. I like these. These these terms from from the the DSM, <laughs> it's, like, it's pathological. It's oh, uh, right. <laughs> it's me, me mentally incompetent. And, you know. Yeah. This, yeah. So we were able to fix that one query. It was a minor little tweak. Just made it into a different query. It's the same equivalence, oh. and it doesn't block nearly as much. This actually had to do with search, which we don't. Spoof. I mean, we use search, but I don't. You know, tested as much as some of the other functions on the site. So uh, I probably had no question about search on the site. We have we have search in two places, right? We got the search box, and then we have when you type a title for a question. Uh, yes. we look it up in search, right? Those are our two places. Is there anything else? That's on? right. No, that's it. I was just thinking, you know what I would do if we, if if you have some time in between uh, in between the, the the playing all your Christmas games two months early. <laughs> um. Uh. Give people an option to use Google Search, Google Custom Search, where the box oh, is just run by Google. Oh, we do. We do. You have to huh? – if you search for something and you don't find anything. No, but I mean presented. just as, a, as the first choice, do you bug Because I would sort of like to hear from users who use this a lot. Uh, yeah, I can't – you have to not find anything. And I don't mean searching on Google. I mean searching on our site just using the Google engine. Right. With Google Custom Search, where you, uh, it took me, I, I set that up on Jolin Software yesterday. I've been using it for, for Jolin Software since the beginning of time, but they have some new tools since then, and now it shows up on Jolin yeah, Software. Yeah, search, search for just for just some random gibberish phrase, and you'll see how we do it. Uh, try searching Google. Well, I was yeah. thinking of just making that the primary search, and have some people, you know, some people can try it, and some people can leave it off, or maybe both search boxes can be there. And just over time, let's try to get some feedback from people on whether our, our search is even worth maintaining or whether Google is just doing a better job of searching our site than uh, the full-text search. Because that would sure offload an awful lot of uh, – well, first of all, it would offload an awful lot of um, uh, uh, CPU off of our site onto Google. 
So well, presumably, well, a couple of comments there. Well, presumably, people who know programmers should know how to scope a search to a site anyway. Like, I'm not against doing that, but yeah. I would guess that a huge percent of our audience. Uh, okay, how said, many people go? Just go tell me once every day how many people type something into the search box. Well, I don't, I don't have that at my fingertips. Because I, um, I was going to say the second reason to do this is uh, that they'll pay you. Yes, that's true. And you know, maybe it's a, a lot of money. It'd be a dollar fifty, a dollar, dollar seventy five. We could buy a, a Jones Great Sodas Kiwi Soda. <laughs> Delicious. Do? How refreshing! <laughs> if only I could purchase that. Uh, I, I will say that it is true historically, and I, I have numbers. Like I, I, I do use Google Search on Coding Horror, mm-hmm. um, and I will say that the click through rates for so for it's search yeah. targeted. So the advantage of putting ads there is you're putting ads for something that you just searched for. Right. right. So if you search for yeah. Enterprise Java Bean Manager, um, some product that helps you deal with Enterprise Java Beans will then show up in the results. So it's much more targeted. And the statistics that I see between the few dinky little things that I do with, with Google AdSense shows that the click-through rate is like five times higher on search. It's wow. dramatically higher. The, um, I mean, the other good thing about Stack Overflow is this is a search-oriented website. I mean, it's a site for which search is extremely appropriate. You know, whereas sure. if you go to Joel on software, for example, searches, um, you know, if you can't, you know, you know it's there, but you don't know where. Um, but that's not really the way the site is designed to be used. Whereas uh, with Stack Overflow, the searching is actually kind of key. So I think there's probably a lot of people doing it. And we might be able to actually make, heck, $3, $4 off of the uh, Google uh, search. Right. Well, you know, Coding R gets quite a bit of traffic. I would say that Stack Overflow gets more, obviously, now. Yeah, and it's more in its search. It's the kind of traffic that's looking for stuff. It's not necessarily the kind of traffic that's just reading blog posts. Now, the one downside of using Google exclusively is that as much as I love Google, and Google works tremendously well, there are scenarios where you really want a more targeted search than what Google can offer you. For example, if I'm searching for something within the Python tag, there's no real way to do that through Google. I mean, you could search for the word Python, but it's going to be really erratic in terms of results. Oh, is it not a... Oh, because the tags... The questions are not like in subdirectories or anything based on the tags. Well, they could be. they're not. You could have a copy of every... You could have a copy of every article in a subdirectory for every tag that it's in. They could be. That's... Well, actually... Hmm... So you basically have question slash tag slash Python slash and then the name of the question, and then you just well, put actually, that in your Actually, you're right. Map. Now, that I, I didn't really think of it that way, but you're right. So I'm, I clicked on the Ruby tag. I'm looking at stackoverflow.com slash question slash tagged slash Ruby. Mm-hmm. So technically, I guess you're right. You could do that. I didn't really think of that. So you could scope it to that folder. It's not really a folder, of course, but for Google's no, but I mean, purpose, even it is. Yeah, but, but tag slash Ruby, and then everything under there, basically all you got to do is put duplicate copies in sitemap.xml so that Google thinks, oh, yeah, there's a copy of this thing here and there's a copy of this thing there. And then that allows it to live in four or five places or up to, up to five places, one for each tag uh, right. as the place where it appears. I mean, obviously, there's only one copy of it on the back end since you're using the, the, the ASP.NET MVC, which lets you do whatever kind of mapping of URLs to things that you want. So you could theoretically have URLs and then, if you, and then you could scope the Google queries using a, a regular expression. Right. Yeah, that's possible. Um, I, I think you would still want both search methods. Um, one thing we haven't done, but I'm about to do, um, it's on the list. It's not that hard to do, actually, is I want to give people the ability to search by uh, user. So show everything a certain user has done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, isn't that in their user page? Uh, it is in their user page, but it's not a search function. So you might want to say, show me everything that this guy, Ed, posted that it contains the word... C sharp or within the C sharp tag, oh. basically just your generalized type of mm-hmm. query system. Um, but certainly Google is great. I'm not knocking Google at all. Um, but I, I do think it would, t- it would require the change that you talked about because now that I've thought a little bit more about it, you're right. That would have to be in sitemap.xml, which it clearly isn't at the moment. And the relationship with Google and duplicate quote unquote duplicate content is kind of unclear. I'm a little nervous about having. You know, say you have something with five tags. That's five duplicates from Google's perspective, the same exact content. They may be unhappy. Yeah, I'm not sure how they would react to that. You, uh, the other alternative is to put um, in, in the sitemap, when you list all the pages, 
put slash tag equals and then some expression, whatever it may be, some regular expression. Right. And then um, and then when you do this, the Google custom search, you're searching for that regular expression in the – does, does that make sense? So it's basically uh, – You can use regular expressions in Google custom search? Really? I think so. I think you can search for results where the URL matches a regular expression. One thing I've never really done much in Google, I don't think I'm I've, not sure. I, I've done a lot of stuff with Google, but I got to tell you, I don't think I've ever done any sort of wildcard searches in Google, like, you know, words beginning all. with X. They, they do have it, but yeah. I, I got to say, I don't think I've ever legitimately needed it or used it. I'm going to look have on you? there right now uh, to see, um, boom, 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 view all channels. I'm trying to see AdSense for search. They have a thing. It's kind of confusing. They have a thing called custom search and another thing called AdSense for search. Um, parts of sites or entire sites. Entering different URLs to search. I'm looking at there. Uh, yeah, you can use uh, wildcards. You can use wildcards. So you can use stars anyway. It's not regular expressions, but you can put wildcards anywhere you want in the URL. Right. So yeah, it's not regular expressions, but yeah, you can do they little toss. For example, www.mysite.com slash splat about splat. Is their example, and so uh, you could, if you put the tags in there as like tag dash tag name slash tag dash tag name slash tag dash slag na- tag name, so that all the URLs that we showed to Google also happen to include all the tags, then mm-hmm. you could probably do a search based on uh, that regular expression. And uh, whew, this is only worth doing, actually. There's two reasons this might be worth doing. One is if that money adds up to anything from the AdSense. Um, which I doubt because it always ends up being forty-five cents. Uh, and the other is if that uh, if that um, if that takes a lot of load off of the database server. Well, right, sure, that makes sense. I, I don't money. think there's actually that much load. I think we just have that two thousand eight issue, which they're which they're fixing. working on, and and already there's an improvement that's been deployed about search, where we had these the one pathologically bad query plan. That is no longer being issued. The psychosomatic <laughs> pathological. <laughs> okay. It was really bad. It was like catastrophically bad. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it took minutes. Oh. And it, just, it was just, a, it was a silly little query. It wasn't like something that was really complicated. So it was just the query plan creator was freaking out. Weird. So let me, let me bring up a post that I like. I'm actually going through my favorites here. Yeah. And I think I get emails from people every now and then that, are doing a search for something in Google, like something they're actually trying to find. Mm-hmm. And they get a number one hit or a very high hit on Stack Overflow, and they're like, wow, you know what, it actually, it's actually working. And the first time, I actually starred the first time that happened to me. Because people have been very critical of um, one decision I made, which was to write my own uh, HTML sanitizer. And one of the reasons they oh. criticize that is a lot of people don't understand yeah. how few options there really are right, in the right. .NET world for sanitizing. I mean, sanitizing is not the same as stripping. If you just want to strip HTML, yeah, that's that's fine. That's relatively straightforward. But if you want to, you know, this is good, this is bad, that's way, way harder. And there's just not a lot of code in the yep. .NET ecosystem. And I tried to communicate that in my blog post. I'm not sure if I succeeded. But people pointed to some Python libraries, this this library called Beautiful Soup. Mm-hmm. Which is a great library. It's got a great name, first of all. It's a really cool name. That's half Completely the battle, right? meaningless. I have no idea from having heard that what on earth it does. Well, it beautiful soup. soup is tag soup, right? Like you have these tags that are malformed and you know, I beautiful see. soup will just magically work. Like you can just query for stuff in the HTML, even if it's just crap HTML and it'll work. Okay. Uh, so it's a great library and I had, I had read about it for a while ago and I, I knew about it. But people said, well, why don't you just use that in .NET? And I said, well... That's like telling me to like ride a unicorn. It's like, I, how am I going to use a Python library? You know, Iron Python, that? baby. Well, that's what they said, Iron Python. So I did a search for Iron Python, beautiful soup, and get my number one hit was Stack Overflow, which, <laughs> which was is awesome. you saying, how do I do it? <laughs> no, oh, it wasn't me. It was, it was someone somebody else. else. Oh, okay. Yeah. The question is, does beautiful soup work with Iron Python? If yep. so, which version of Iron Python? How easy? How easy is it to distribute? Blah 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 blah. All the typical questions you would probably ask. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so there's some good answers. There's actually quite a few answers. There's seven answers, and the information is here. And it's pretty much what you would think, which is, yes, it kind of works, but it's probably not something you would want to do in anything remotely resembling 
a production application. <laughs> like it kind of yeah, works. The performance might be or compared to the other things that we do. Yeah. Uh, so the title is Iron Python code. Beautiful Soup Win32, if you want to search for it. All right, here, let me give you my favorite of the sure, week. go ahead. I'm going to pick one that we can actually talk about for a while. Uh, sure. t- 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 these are all good. Um, there's one that's called Coding in Other Languages. It's actually like Coding in Other Spoken Languages. Like, like w- w- the programming language, like when you say if and for, those are all English words. And so this person is asking, would there ever be an application of like actually changing the programming language itself to use words that are that are native to the speaker? Right. Well, quick interjection. I actually mm. searched for that using our built-in search, and it actually worked. <laughs> I'm just pointing that out. <laughs> it's hit number three. Anyway, I'm clicking through. Continue. Yeah. Well, I didn't even read uh, what everything had mentioned here. And of course, the 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 I think the 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 main answer says you know it, it doesn't really matter. These are reserved words in programming languages. You have about eight of them, twelve, sixteen of them, and uh, no matter what language you speak, it's not your word. Like when I say for in a programming language, F O R, that's not the English word for. That's the reserved word for, which has very very special meaning. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not – even translating it would, would, would not make a heck of a lot of sense. Um, uh, the, the only reason I wanted to bring this one up is uh, I'll talk about what we did with Excel VBA, which is sort of surprising, which is that um, the uh, Excel macro language that came before VBA, uh, Visual Basic for Applications, but there the, was this thing that you wrote in, 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 in spreadsheets. In, like in the worksheet, you would actually write functions, and they would execute one at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's how we did uh, that. That was the old Excel macro language, it was a very bizarre programming language. But those Excel functions, um, like like when you put you know equal sum or equal sign or equals you know equal concat or whatever those things were, those were actually translated in the various translated versions of Excel. So wow. the the sum function actually became S O M M E in 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 France, which makes sense, right? Trust me, it does. The French people would not like to see a bunch of English language names of functions. You know, things like date or whatever. It's just, just go ahead and translate them. And, and, and it actually, they weren't translated in every country and in every localized version of Excel. Uh, it, I think it really depends on what country you go to. Some countries are far more happy or far more willing to use user interfaces where a part of the interface or a part of the user experience is in English as opposed to their native language. It, you know, it all depends on the country and how much localization they wanted. But those those formulas were always translated, and as a result, the Excel macros were also the Excel macro functions that were designed for macro programming in a spreadsheet were uh, translated as well because you know everything else is translated there. Why not? And so we actually made the decision with Visual Basic for Applications uh, that the keywords could be translated. You didn't make this decision, though. Someone well, else made it. Uh, you know, I don't remember who actually. It's not like somebody made the call. It's more like, you know, a bunch of people got together and decided that, that it would be possible to translate these, and it would be up to the discretion of the localizers for each for each uh, national version of Excel to decide whether or not they wanted to. But they would certainly have that capability. Right. So, if I'm not mistaken, Visual Basic for applications um, did actually in in some languages. French, I think, allow you to uh, change uh, the language um, in which those keywords appeared, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, and what was even more bizarre is that um, the Visual Basic for Applications is based on Visual Basic, not .NET. And this older version of Visual Basic, the, the source code for the files was not actually a text file. It was uh, a, a pre-tokenized text file, so it stored tokens that could be displayed as a text file, but they were actually internally already tokens. And you could take a, uh, a macro that you had written in Visual Basic uh, for applications for, for English and open it up in the French version of Excel, and all your IFs would change into SIs and so forth because the actual keywords would suddenly appear localized. Bizarre but true. Yeah, that's. I actually researched this. This came up on my blog. I was writing. I don't even remember what I was writing about. But then I started to wonder. I was like, why don't you see more programming languages that are actually localized? In because languages, yeah. You yeah. know, commercial software companies are crazy about localization because it basically means money to them, right? I mean, more people yeah. in wherever are going to buy your product if they can understand what it says on the screen, right? Right. Right. Um, 
I remember the original push for this back in Windows 95. I remember they had some weird like tour they gave at movie theaters where you could actually go in and there was no charge for this mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually watch them do something about Windows 95. And they had a whole guy, a whole section on localization. And back in 95, you know, that was the dark ages for me, <laughs> certainly. I was like, why would you care about this stuff, right? But yeah. Microsoft even then was super, super mega serious about it. Like they said, Windows 95 was the first operating system they had that was released in N different languages, like on the day of release and all that stuff. But you don't really see this with programming languages. And it does seem like... Yeah, you know, it's extremely rare what Excel did. I've never seen this in any other... I don't know of it in any other language. You, what you will see, though, is uh, developers... Uh, in um, in in foreign <laughs> countries, strange lands. Um, sometimes their English is not good enough to actually come up with their own function names in English. <laughs> They're like, ah, I don't know how to say that. And so you'll see them write their function names in Italian or whatever. And uh, you know, half of them will be in English, half of them will be in broken English, half of them will be in misspelled English, and the other half, how many halves is that? Will be in you know, Croatian or something. <laughs> Right. And, uh, I, I have seen that as well. I think they. Sh- I've seen it as like a exemplar code of like how, you know, if you don't really understand English, yeah. that's how you have to do it, right? You have to write the function names in your native language. I mean, you can't <laughs> right. magically become proficient in English just because you've learned the keywords. One thing I have to say that I've noticed is that there is a norm among programmers and engineers that they speak English, and there is a everywhere in the world, and there is a lack of willingness to admit that they don't really speak English so fluently as they really do. So they'll always say, oh, no, we prefer this in English. We can, it's okay, we know English. You just give it to us, just give it to us in English. Uh, and then they won't understand it or listen to it or pay any attention. Right. Now, I, I did find a Wikipedia page that, as with all things Wikipedia, uh, documents the handful of languages that are, are, in fact, not necessarily localized, but I think they're actually just in different native languages than English. So there are, in fact, programming languages that, that do not have English keywords. I don't know if there's a, the one you, the case you described where they actually localized the language. I mean that's mind-blowingly difficult, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't that a language that's just not English. I mean, yeah. it's it's interesting to view that through the lens of like colonialism of like, okay, this isn't a programming language that ha- doesn't have English keywords. How would you react to that, mm-hmm. right? It's just weird because having you know grown up in America and, and know English, it's like to us like, oh, every programming language should be in English because that's how they always have been, right? So I think it's a little bit eye-opening about just some of the cultural issues when you see a language that's uh, not English in a programming language. So, yeah, that's a great one. That's a really good one. All right. Uh, let's uh, – okay, so we got two questions from listeners. Maybe we should – I mean, we got two questions from Stack Overflow. Wait, now i got to check yeah. that off to make so I don't ask that again. Let's do it. Let's do the uh, listener questions. Oh, uh, listener questions. Yeah, here uh, – here the – Hello, Jeff and Joel. Jonas. Uh, my name is Jonas. From and I'm Sweden. calling from Sweden. Um, I just yeah, listened I to your uh, podcast number 25, where you touched on um, what defines or what characteristics a good programmer should have. Um, I'm wondering if you can expand uh, on what characteristics a programmer should have um, and how I should, uh, when hiring people, uh, programmers, how, uh, how I should... Uh, get them to tell me about their, what gets them, what what makes them a good programmer. Uh, and I also want to thank you for a good show and a great website. Yeah. Bye. What did we say in Podcast 25? I'm trying to find the show notes here. Well, this is right up your alley, Joel. I mean, you've really? literally written books about this. I mean, this is like, <laughs> are you sure you didn't pay this guy to ask this question? Well, no, it's too easy. And uh, that's true. Actually, you know what? We uh, What did we talk about? We talked about, that was the one in which we talked about, um, uh, we talked with Steve Yeggy. Ah, yes. That was the, the Steve Yeggy uh, one. And he had just written an article called Done and Gets Things Smart. Right. Which was his painfully amateurish attempt to <laughs> simultaneously undermine and reinvent the concept of Smart and Gets Things Done, which is the title of my book, but not a, not a phrase that I really made up. Smart and Gets Things Done came from Microsoft Recruiting. It was something Microsoft always said. I, I don't know. They may have gotten it from somewhere else, but it's certainly not my invention um, that the way you evaluate a programmer is to see if they're smart and get things done. And smart is uh, smart. You know it when you see it. And it's pretty easy to find interview questions to decide if someone is smart um, and, and gets things done is uh, sort of necessary because there is a category of people that are really smart, but they don't really get anything done. Um, usually I, I like to point out, um, get out your pencils, PhDs, 
sorry. Uh, a lot of people, um, there's just sort of, for whatever reason, a lot of PhDs in computer science are really, really, really smart. But something about academia has slowed down their rate of getting things done to the point of like one project per three years, which is about what you're trained to do in graduate school. And so... You uh, mentioned that. That came up in the in the Reddit do uh, I keep episode yeah, as well. Sorry, I... No, no, I mean, against. that's interesting that you bring that up. I, I didn't realize you found it to be such a pronounced trend. Um, yeah. All right, that's fair. There's, there's, there's PhDs that don't have that particular problem, but they really do have to train themselves out of it because there's something about the type, the, the, the graduate school and academia in general teaches you to stop and smell the flowers in a way that you just don't have time to do in the industry because, you know, it's that quiet meandering and exploring and patient examination of every possibly possible interesting direction, uh, which is how you do uh, original research and how you discover things. And so that's appropriate for academia, um, but it's not really appropriate for uh, development, for typical development. So let, let me ask you, so what about the opposite end of that spectrum? What if you had a programmer who, not smart, well, how much do you get factor done? in education? Like if it was just a high school education, person never went to college, but I mean, how, how would that influence or does um, it not at all? Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know if there's necessarily a correlation with developers. Um, you know, there are sort of the self-taught developers, um, mm-hmm. developers that either had a crappy undergraduate degree or an undergraduate degree in a different subject. Or, and uh, uh, sometimes they'll have a weakness where they'll fail to do something the computer science way. They'll, they won't know a basic algorithm and they'll do something through brute force. Um, they'll write a compiler without a lecture and a parser, um, but it'll somehow work kind of, but won't have a lecture and a parser. And, and, and um, so you do see people that it's like, oh boy, if you had just taken one class in compilers, <laughs> your life would have been so much easier. <laughs> and they'll overcome, they'll overcome it through sheer, you know, strength of, of will. Yes. You know, sheer lines of code, basically. So um, does it factor though? Say you had a, a, two candidates come in, one had a degree from, I don't know, Stanford, pick some random college that is highly regarded mm-hmm. versus a guy who just had a high school education. Yeah. So it, doesn't factor at all. I would I would interview the Stanford guy first just to save time because because there there is actually a correlation. Um, so those go to higher in the pile then. That's yeah. not the only difference. But yeah. if I interviewed them and that was the only thing that was left, that wouldn't uh, that that wouldn't be a criteria. And we've definitely hired people from um, schools without such a great reputation, and and they've turned out fantastic. And we've also uh, um, turned you know turned down a lot of people from. I mean, we still haven't found any from anybody from Harvard who's qualified to work here. So this is a challenge if you're a Harvard graduate and you think that there is a Harvard graduate out there somewhere who is qualified to work at Fog Creek. Email your resume to jobs at foggreek.com. I'm emailing my resume right now, actually. Um, so smart, smart, but without get things done is uh, the, you know, the meandering likes to think about problems, but really just the lines of code are not getting produced. Um, not smart, but gets things done is the just kind of spewing things in every possible direction, checking in a lot of bad code, and then tearing it up and checking it in again, and just, you know, all kinds of flurry of activity. Neither smart nor, nor gets things done is just does not complete projects. Nothing gets done. And so uh, you're really looking for, 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 for both of those things. Um, and uh, like I said, there's a whole book about it that I wrote that's called Smart and Gets Things Done. But the way that you judge smart... Um, and I can go into this in more detail, is to try to have the kind of conversations at which, in which smart people can identify other smart people. When you're talking to somebody about the weather and how good the weather is uh, today, um, mm-hmm. and also like maybe if you're talking to them about their background and their career, you're not able, even a smart person can't tell whether you're talking to a smart person or not. If you're talking to them about uh, lambda calculus and whether... Um, you know, when, and piano numbers and, uh, and NP completeness, um, then if you're a smart person, you will be able to judge as you have that conversation whether you're talking to a smart person or not. So part of it is not like a test to see if they get the answer true or false. Part of it is what can we all have a conversation about here during the interview uh, that will allow me to use my own judgment as to whether or not you're smart. So it has to be a kind of a highly technical conversation. And the person how often are you guys yeah. hiring? I mean, how often do you go through the hiring process? All the time? Well, uh, we, you know, every year we have a, a, a big buttload of interns. Um, so uh, right now we're going through a lot of intern interviews. If you're interested in a summer internship at Fog Creek, once again, jobs at foggreek.com. They're awesome in, 
internships, you get everything free. And um, you, can get, you even set up a cool place for people to live, don't you? You don't even have to be in New York. Yeah, we get City, them. Uh, right? We get them a dorm, which is all paid for. They get free food here at Fog Creek. The, the, you really have very few expenses. Uh, you get a free bus pass and uh, um, and a um, a decent salary, but w- an excellent salary when you consider that all the housing and food is free, pretty much. Um, right. That's awesome. I'm, I and I can vouch for that. Fog Creek is a really awesome place to hang out. So I yeah. If if you're in college, you should definitely apply. <laughs> yeah, this is your internship, and New York is just really fun in the summer. There's so much stuff to do. We have, we have an activity every week, like, uh, you know, museums, Broadway shows, um, Yankees games, that kind of stuff, parties, trip to the Hamptons. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. So that's uh, how you evaluate whether they're smart is, is uh, you have a conversation and, and, um, usually, uh, I like to, uh, um, have a conversation about code. And so usually that's done by asking the person to write some code in front of you and show that they can do it. And talk about it and kind of explore the details of the code that was written. And uh, right. you can tell right away. Um, it's, it's very important as the interviewer to control the conversation for the reasons that you mentioned. Because you want to have conversations about things that are going to tell you whether this person is appropriate for the job. And I've yep. been in a lot of interviews where the interviewer does not do a good job of controlling oh, yeah. the interview. And the, really, it's a job. I and mean, you have to concentrate as the interviewer and say, I'm only going to talk about things that will tell me if this person is a good candidate. We're not going to just randomly talk about whatever topic comes to right. mind. A lot of interviewers don't know how to do that, and they're not going to know how to evaluate you. And, then, and, and if you find yourself in that situation, um, you know, there's a couple of problems. One is you may not get the job because you're not friendly or you didn't go to the right school or you didn't make the right witty comment about Dorothy Parker. Uh, the other may be that uh, uh, you probably don't want to work in that kind of place because they're probably not. You know, if you go if you go to a company and the interview process is really bad and and you don't and, you know maybe not enough people you don't have a full day of interviews you just have one interview and you just talk about your resume and schmooze instead of actually um, demonstrating that you can write code. Um, this may not be the company you want to work at. There's probably a lot of people that got in there through that same process. And so a lot of your coworkers are going to be dumb. I hate to say this, but that's the way to put it. So um, in general, I, I don't like to take jobs. You know, I don't recommend that people take jobs at companies that don't have a rigorous interviewing process. Um, um, but uh, no, I, I would totally agree with that. In sometimes, fact, uh, yeah. Go ahead. You got to judge. You should judge the company as well, right? If you don't feel like their interview process is good, that's a bad sign. That right? is a, that is usually a should. very bad sign. Yeah, yeah. I totally uh, agree. Now, another problem is that, uh, you know, maybe the interview process is good and you know that it's a good company, you know, it's a Google or a Microsoft, but you just happen to have landed with a very badly trained interviewer or somebody that just doesn't know what to do and doesn't know what kind of questions to ask and is sort of like, you know, asking you questions about things on your resume and five minutes have passed and they just don't know what to do. Um, you got to go into that interview as an interviewee prepared to demonstrate that you're smart. And the way to do that is to say, you know, would you like me to talk about, you know, the, the code decisions that I made, the architectural decisions that I made on my last project? Would you like to know about some data structures we decided to use? Would you like to know about, you know, how we decided to set up the servers or how we decided to create a security system for? You just want to, you know, be prepared with a few little speeches that you can launch into that demonstrate just how smart you are, you know, highly technical speeches. Um, uh, that you can wow the interview with if the, if, if the interviewer um, just happens to be untrained. But if you find yourself in a company that just doesn't seem to really care how good you are, then you should kind of ask yourself, do I really need this job? And uh, maybe I can find a job where there's some smart people. Uh, right. Because it's always nicer to work at a place with smart people. Now, get things done. I don't have great answers for that. You know, I look at their history and I try to talk well, about it. No, no, no. You, you do have a great answer. I think get I things do. done. You've got to have this trail of breadcrumbs. You have to have this portfolio That's true. as a programmer. Of stuff but you, you know what? Point to. It's like it's, I did this, I did this, I did this. It's too hard to kind of fake that. Like you can say, "I was at this company and we did this," and you're like, "Well, we okay. What did you do? What was your role?" Sometimes it's too easy to take credit for things other people did on the team. But uh, if you could, well, how could? Wait, a, wait a second. <laughs> how can you take credit for somebody something someone else did if you can't like explain it? So if you say, "Okay, I built eBay," that's right? true. <laughs> yeah. Then you would say, "Okay, well, how did you build eBay? Describe it to me." How yeah. did you start? How many servers did you have? I That's mean, it seems like there would be sort of a lack of detail on their part that would be sort of telling, right? Like That does have That has really happened. Did. That has happened, where somebody has taken credit for something, and you realize they didn't understand it, let alone they couldn't have been the person who designed it or developed it or built it. Right. 
Right. So yeah, you can, and, and I think having a portfolio, we talked about looking at code samples. Um, this was the thing that was most surprising to me was like, I, I felt as a programmer, you should carry around kind of like semi-working samples of things that you've done and be able to basically email them to people and say, look, I did this. Here's some code mm-hmm. I worked on and here's why it's cool. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of your, your, your foot in the door. That's your intro. That can uh, definitely, and, uh, that can definitely work. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't even have that. They were like, oh, yeah, everything I've worked on has been you know, secret and proprietary, and I can't show you anything. And I just felt like that was such a cop-out. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's true in some industries. Uh, but to me, get, gets things done is like a trail of breadcrumbs. Show me the trail of breadcrumbs. That you know, a good programmer is a, is a hobbyist as well, and they're going to have something that's not just from their previous job, or many of them are. So it, it is fair to ask for some, some, some old code or some sample code, or it is a very useful thing to have in your pro portfolio to to prove that you're good the other way we test uh, get things done is I, I do actually have some questions that i do early on you know maybe in the phone screen stage um one thing i'll commonly say is can you, can you give me a situation um from your current work environment where uh there was a conflict that you resolved like uh, maybe a manager thought you should do something one way and you thought it should be another way and and how did you resolve that how did you deal with that and a lot of right. times choke i use a lot of choking <laughs> Uh, they, no, but a lot of times somebody will will actually be able to produce a story in which they got something done. Sure. And no, that's uh, great. Um, so so I am kind of like looking for those things, and it doesn't have to be work. If it's a college student, you know, it may be um, you know something that they did in a uh, uh, you know a, what do they call it youth group, you know, like a campus group or something, some campus group that they reorganized or created or started or some some drama, some play that the the drama group was putting on and they were in charge of blah, blah, blah. And this terrible thing happened and they solved it. You know, it's funny talking about this interviewing. I mean, I don't plan to do hopefully any more interviews for the rest of my life. Ideally. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're uh, the CEO of what's it called? Stack, stack overflow. Stack overflow. Uh, you might have even to hire talking some about this makes me want to do interviews. There's something about wanting approval from other people. That's mm-hmm. just so seductive. I don't know what it is. I want to go into an interview now and just really just impress people and I want them to want me like the song. Oh, right? you need to be interviewed. <laughs> You're like tempted to be interviewed? Well, I just, it's, it's weird. There's a game aspect to interviewing. Because sort of. I keep, I wonder, I mean, obviously people need to make money. People need to have jobs. There's a utility to being good at interviews, right? So you can get the jobs that you want, move forward in life. There's a very practical aspect to this. But there's also this other meta game level to interviewing that's mm-hmm. fascinating where even if you really don't want the job, you want them to want you, yeah. right? Some I, people get so really stressed by interviews and, 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 uh, and I understand why it's, it's stressful. But you know what? The people that we tend to hire uh, here um, – their usual response, and, some, and often they're surprised by that. They're like, we'll get letters from them. We'll get an email from them after the interview saying, you know, I can't believe it, but I had a really good time. And even if you don't hire me, I had a great time getting interviewed at Fog Creek. That was really fun. And oh, that's, that's great, Joel. That is probably the highest compliment you can get. It's not because we're giving them a good time. It's because, they're, they, because if you're smart, you love hard problems, and you love being given little toeholds, and you love solving the hard problems. Oh, absolutely. No, that's so, bedrock. That's what it's all about. So that's a tremendous compliment for your organization. That's great. Yeah, so I we mean, always... I, uh, I, I believe in that totally. Cool. All right, yeah. we got... Uh, what are, how are we doing on time here? Oh, we still got... We got about eight minutes. Let's see if we got another uh, question here. So I got to get that one asked so I can delete it now. Delete. Um, Hi, guys. My name is Idris Salum. I am a software consultant from Paris, France. I want to know what do you guys think about the fact that Microsoft is now releasing new .NET versions and frameworks at such a speed that it might spread the curve of adoption of these Microsoft technologies from both developer and the end user standpoints. I want to know what do you guys feel about that. Thank you very much. Well, Go for I'm, it. I'm basically for it. I'm... <laughs> I think spiritually, I'm I'm the type of developer that I like to break things. Like I don't, I think Joel historically, and this might have changed for you, Joel. I mean, you had that classic article um, about the two schools of of thought at Microsoft. There was the Raymond Chen camp, mm-hmm. then the MSDN magazine camp. It's mm-hmm. like, what do you what do you preserve? Backwards compatibility, or you know, combining a bunch of things together in, in the most Rube Goldberg like way possible. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm sort of in the middle there. Like I. I like to see rapid evolution. I mean, the whole reason I became a software developer is the fascination, 
the fascination that I have with the evolution of the machine, which changes so rapidly. I mean, even in my lifetime, it's like it's unrecognizable from where it used to be. So I love forward progress. I mean, I I love you know the latest and greatest toys, the latest and greatest uh, programming languages and libraries and things like that. Um, so Maybe I, for one, with regards to yeah the dot framework, I mean, I'm I'm very much a fan of it. I think all the changes that they've made have been really good ones. I don't think there have been a lot of sort of dumb mistake type changes in .NET. I mean, have you seen anything in .NET that you feel like, okay, that was not really worth a whole version upgrade? Um, well, if I could keep up with it, I'm sure I could find something. But my my problem, and I'm going to take the opposite side, is that it's not that the stuff that's coming out is dumb, but just that I can't keep up with it all. Right. And maybe that's because I'm not 100% full-time you know, develop, developing in .NET. Um, but there's just sort of new frameworks, new APIs, new ways of doing things coming out at a rate because it's being generated by so many programmers at Microsoft, essentially. There's so right. many teams at Microsoft working on making .NET better, especially the, the, the class libraries, the framework itself, that uh, it's very hard for one programmer, you know, because I don't get an extra brain just because Bill Gates hires another 5,000 people to work on the .NET framework. Uh, you know, it's very hard for, for us as programmers to keep up with all that stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, the, what it, what it reminds me of is, uh, when did Java came out in, I guess, 1994, 1995 or something when the Java programming language came out. And I remember I downloaded it and I read all the documentation and I built some little apps with it, some applets, cause that's all it had. It had applets inside a web browser. That was really the first thing that Java was for was writing these web, web-based applets. And, uh, at some point, you know, in those days we had Usenet, so I'd, I would hang out on the Java group on Usenet and answer people's questions. And at some point, um, I sort of felt wait, wait, like... Wait. You would hang out on Usenet and answer Java questions? I think so. Really? Okay. Keep Maybe going. Maybe just ask questions. <laughs> it was like Stack Overflow back in the day. This is something somebody should be able to find, right? Somebody, somebody look this up, see if I answered any questions. I definitely answered questions on Usenet in my day. Uh, I don't remember if they were Java questions or if that was on the... They might have had they might have had web based groups there, or maybe I just sort of sent emails or something. But um, uh, the point I'm trying to tell is that I actually felt that I knew everything about the Java API, like I knew what all the class libraries were and how they all worked. Right. Because it was the kind of thing you could learn in a week. There wasn't that much to it, and that was one of the things I loved about uh, Java was when Bill Joy stood up with the the annotated C plus plus reference manual. And said, and this was at the introduction of Java, Java 1, the very first conference that they had to introduce it, which was a press event of some sort in, in New York, actually. And, uh, and so, so Bill Joy had this uh, annotated C++ reference manual. And he said, I thought what I would do is go through this and cross out all the parts of this book, which was this huge, thick, encyclopedia-like book about C++ that you just don't have to worry about because Java has simplified them in some way. And, you know, and he got through, I don't know how many, 20, 30 pages of this thing, and almost all of it was crossed out because there's certain things like there's only one class of storage. You don't have to worry about stack versus heap versus uh, um, the, the parameters versus, uh, you know, there was just one class. Everything's in the same class of storage. And, um, uh, you know, there's only one version of every data type. And the Java spec never gives the implementer any leeway. The Java spec always says what will happen, whereas the C++ and the C spec always says, you know, this, this is implementation dependent. If you want to, you can, uh, you know, send an email to the moon when somebody does these undefined things because they're undefined. Um, anyway, the point is Java was so much simpler than C++ that it was actually possible in a week or so to learn everything. And when there was only applets, you had a limited set, the class library, you could read it. It was hopelessly inadequate, <laughs> missing all kinds of things. And about six months to a year later, uh, Sun came out with this big announcement saying, hey, we're, you know, Java's been a real hit. We're listening to you. Your biggest complaint is a lack of APIs. I think that was the way they put it. I think they said, or maybe class libraries, not enough class libraries, not enough APIs. So don't worry, we got your APIs. We got 100 class libraries coming up. You can do this, you can do that. There was a you know, communications class library. There's a database access class library. There were hundreds of them. There are all kinds of class libraries. They were all sort of created in those early days. Um, a lot of them were uh, highly redundant. Like, for example, there were, you know, six different ways to do the same thing because there were so many groups working so enthusiastically at Sun to come up with, 
class libraries that a lot of times they duplicated their effort and they did so in slightly different ways and they had slightly different conventions for doing things. And eventually it just became impossible to keep track of all that stuff. Uh, unless it was really your full-time job to keep track of it because they were just generating too much stuff too fast. Um, now, I'm not saying that these aren't good APIs or important class libraries that they really needed, but uh, I am saying that you know it's just kind of overwhelming for a lot of programmers. And I feel like .NET has just gotten into that mode lately where there's suddenly you need a poster, like there's these big posters that are like, here are all the new class libraries coming up in the next version of .NET. And you look at it, and it's just a whole bunch of names. And you're like, oh, my God, every one of these would take a few days to learn about. And I have a job to do. So how, how is this making my life easier when you're just giving me these crazy lists of things to learn? Well, I, I, I agree with that. But I think you have to view it as um, just-in-time learning. Of You obviously have to learn the core language. Now, I, I, would, I tend to ignore a lot of the stuff that goes on at the periphery. Like, mm-hmm. I'll hear about something, and I'm like... Uh, I'll learn just enough to know that I don't need it right now. Mm-hmm. And I'll immediately ignore it forever <laughs> right, until right. such time as I actually need that. And there's a lot of things in this bucket, obviously. This is a huge, huge bucket. I mean, the rest of the world goes in this bucket of ignore until needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think with .NET, what I like about .NET is a lot of the, the innovations that they've made have been at the core of the language. Like, certainly, if you look at generics, you look mm-hmm. at, like, the whole link thing. These are really at the core of the language. So it would be hard to do day-to-day regular programming unless you're just being a stick in the mud and not like just steadfastly not wanting to do anything new and not have the opportunity to try some of this new stuff with just your regular everyday programming. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what I'm really responding to is the, the innovations that they're doing are really at the core. Sure, there's a lot of stuff at the periphery that's crazy and weird and you know, who knows if I'll ever need or care about that stuff. Right. But you know, Anders and those guys are really looking at the core language and saying, how can we evolve the core language in ways that are useful and interesting and that don't sort of screw up the language? I mean, this is where you get into the PHP world of, you know, sort of people that really shouldn't be designing languages, designing languages. Yeah. And having a guy like Anders at the helm, the cool, steady hand, really helps. So that's what I'm really responding to is, you yeah. know, generics and link. And, and I guess they, they did some more stuff with, I haven't looked at it in detail, but C Sharp 4.0, they're going to do a lot more with dynamic typing, which I know on Stack Overflow we could use that because, God, static typing. I know this is like the war that never ends. Yeah. I really feel like... There's this in-between place we need to be at where you can use static or dynamic depending on what you need. Yeah, just right? type inference. That's the answer is you don't have to write the name of the type. It figures it out. Well, but there's a deeper level than that. That's already in there with the var keyword. We use that all the time. It's not, it's not in there deep enough. You can't use a var as a parameter to a function. Right. It needs to go deeper. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I agree totally. And, and that's, that's what I like about .NET. I, I would characterize the evolution of .NET as a really good core migration towards things that developers really need on a day-to-day basis. And I don't know if you could really say that about Java. I mean, it took them a long time to get generics in. Mm-hmm. And generics are, I mean, I can't imagine programming without generics. And supposedly, and I haven't looked, so I don't want any angry emails, but the <laughs> Java implementation is supposedly really not good. Um, they did it in this sort of weird, hacky way that a lot of people are unhappy with. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I can't say that about .NET. A lot of the core innovations have been sort of done right. So... That's my opinion on that. Cool. Well, that little bling is me trying to look up the phone number for the Stack Overflow podcast hotline in case um, any of our listeners uh, have any more questions or want to carry on the conversation, want to phone in with a uh, commentary or a question or uh, something that we should talk about or something that we should do or recommendation for who we should have on the show, um, you can call our hotline by calling uh, 646-826-3879 and just record a message on the voicemail there and uh, that'll get to me. Um, or you can record it uh, on your own computer in MP3 or Ogvorbis format and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Any other announcements? I always no, say that. You never have any announcements. Well, we just have the wiki. Don't forget to talk about the wiki. There's a transcript wiki. Um, it's linked to from the blog, blog blog.stackoverflow.com, where all the show notes um, are located for this episode, episode number 29. And the transcript wiki is a place where anybody can go, hit the edit button, and, and, and help type out a part of the transcript uh, of this show, um, which is uh, helpful for uh, searches, and it's also helpful for the hearing impaired um, who may want to follow along with these podcasts but can't listen to it. In the meantime, we'll see you next week.
You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Joel Spolsky. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.